I am always honored to be able to preach the Word of God. I always consider it um, a privilege beyond anything that I deserve, a privilege beyond anything that I've earned, and certainly I believe that God has um, called me to do something that I'm completely unqualified for, but the beauty is is that when God saves us, he not only justifies us, but he qualifies us for his use um, despite our our sins, and so we just are so thankful for God to be back. I'm just so thankful to be able to preach the word to people. I was so tired of preaching at that camera, and the camera not responding, and then having to watch myself not respond while I'm watching myself. It was like a wormhole was going to open in the middle of my house watching myself preach on camera. So, uh, man, I'm just grateful to be back in front of y'all. I hope y'all ready for the long haul, because it's been a long time coming, all right? So I'm, I'm playing just two and a half hours. That's all I got. Okay, so y'all laughing. <laughs> okay, all right, we'll see. Um, so we have been going through the book of Acts, as you know, and we've been steadily working through the life and the work of the apostles and what the Holy Spirit is doing uh, through the apostles in, um, in their work, in their time, in their ministry, and as they are evangelizing to the many cities that they're going across. Now, there's a bit of irony in today's sermon title, um, not as much irony as there almost was, because most of you know that I'm generally a pretty culturally detached person, so I really don't always know what's happening. And so I titled the sermon this week, Pride. Now, you may or may not know this like I didn't know, but it's Pride Month. So it was actually completely unintentional. Thereby, we made a quick audible to the uh, the title of the sermon. And today's sermon title is Satan's Secret Weapon, which happens to be pride. Now, the irony in today's passage is that we have spent most of our time today, this week, um, these past few months at Acts, looking at Satan's attempt to destroy the church, and the main way that he has done that has been through the persecution of the church. So we have seen that every time that he's attempted to destroy the church through persecution, that God has used that as an impetus, as a driving force to actually grow the church. And not only has it grown the church, but persecution has been the thing that has allowed and caused the church to survive. So it is a bit ironic that the very thing that Satan has tried to use to destroy the church has been the thing that has caused the church inevitably over the course of the church's history to grow. So Satan's desire to destroy the church by bruising it has consistently had the adverse effect on it, which is that when he tries to beat the church up and destroy it, the church has only grown more and gotten stronger. That is the irony, but it actually goes just a little bit deeper than that as well. Persecution for the church, hear me clearly, though it has been used by Satan to destroy the church, has never been the greatest threat to the church. Persecution has never been the greatest threat to the church. God has clearly always used it to build the church up. Unequivocally, The biggest threat, not just to the church, but to all of human history, is not persecution, but it's pride. 
If you look at the world's most dangerous men, the world's most dangerous criminals, the world's worst dictators, there is one commonality that they all have, and it is that they have been suffering from the violent sin of pride. Now, I know some of you are thinking, now, Brandon, as much as you talk about sin, you want to tell me that pride is the biggest threat in human history and to the church. Well, yes. Because inevitably, all sin is rooted in pride. Think about it. Ever since the beginning, it was man's desire to be independent of God that invited sin into the world. They believed that independent from God, they had everything that they needed. And so they introduced sin into the world. See, that is the secret tool that Satan uses in order to undercut the work of God. Today in our text, we're going to see that Satan attempts to stop the missionary work of the apostles, not through persecution, but his attempt is going to be through getting them inflated in their pride. In fact, we're going to see that they're going to allow the Holy Spirit to move in them and they're actually going to arrest his attempt to destroy them. But also what I hope you see today is that, one, we're all bent towards pride. Every single one of us is sick with the same sickness. We're all bent towards pride. And I hope you see today that there are successful ways that we can not only manage, but also fight the temptation to give into our pride. Now, before we begin, I would love to add this caveat. The issue that we're going to see today is not unique. The destructive power of pride is not new. It is what has led to every great fall of every decent man. It is what has led to the fall of every decent church. It is what has led to the fall of every decent ministry. Satan's deceptive use of flattery and its destructive elements have brought many people to their knees. And unfortunately, it was not in willful humility, but many people through their pride have been brought to their knees in open shame. So we're going to look today at how Satan tries to destroy us through pride and what we can do to resist it. Go with me, if you will, to Acts 14 and 8. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Acts 14 and 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather again. We thank you, Lord, of the rich truth that we see in the word. Lord, there are so many opportunities that Satan will present to destroy us, to destroy ministry, to destroy churches, to destroy families, God, through our deeply rooted pride, God. And if we don't trust in you to uproot it, destruction will come. So, God, we pray that you will not only um, allow us to know how Satan tries to destroy us through pride, but that you will give us the tools that we need to be able to fight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the background here is that Paul and Barnabas are still in Antioch, but they keep getting kicked out of cities. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, they had been preaching and they almost split a city in half. And the people were so angry at them that they actually drove them out of that city. And so by the time they drive them out of that city, now they have traveled about 18 miles down and they meet here in Lystra, where they are now, to share the gospel. Now, when they come, there was a man who is crippled and Paul, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm making that point clear because that's going to be really important in a second. Through the power of the Holy Spirit is able to heal the man. Now, why am I making that point that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to do this? Because that has a ton of influence on the rest of what we're going to see today. But it also has implications on what we're going to read. The apostles in the upper room and then later Paul were given a power that was unique only to them to heal and perform miracles in this way. They themselves, however, were not the healers, but rather they were healing by proxy. God was using them as a conduit to do anything that he needed in the world at that time in the establishment of the New Testament church. And so. What we're going to see is going to lead us right into our first point today and is actually one of the most common pitfalls that people fall into. And that's the first point for today, that the power of God is often mistaken as the power of man. The power of God is mistaken as the power of man. Now, this is as common an occurrence as anything which leads many people to pride. And this is not just simply limited to whether or not the person is performing miracles, but this is all of us in all the different ways that God has gifted us in his providential grace. And you will see that is not just related to Christianity, but all the ways that God has gifted us. There are many times that we take those gifts and instead of rendering them back to God as a service for him, we use them for our own glory. 
Listen, that is the importance and understanding that when the Bible says that gifts have been given to us without repentance is because God in his goodness and in his grace has dealt out gifts to all of us. He has gifted us all in different ways. And there are one or two of two things that will happen. Either you will use the way that God has gifted you as a return to his kingdom or you will use the way that God has gifted you as a return to your kingdom. And it won't be both. Either you will build your kingdom now through the gifts that God has given you. Or you will build the kingdom of God for eternity. And what happens so often is because we have been gifted in a way and the minute somebody tells us we're good at what we've done, we forget that it was actually God who gave us the ability to do the thing in the first place. I'll never forget, I had a very serious, and this man was serious, conversation with a guy who said, but if I am able to do something, he says, I don't understand why I have to give God the credit. These were his words verbatim. I was like, what do you mean? He said, but if I'm able to do it, I shouldn't have to say, well, thank God, I'm the one who did it. And I said, but you didn't birth you. Not only did you not birth you, you did not decide which gifts you were given. Because I'm telling you now, if Brandon could decide what gifts he would be given, I would have been up here singing, great is thy faithfulness this morning. <coughs> Great. No, see, I can't do it in my best attempt. That's not the way that God has gifted me. But God has gifted us all in diverse and various ways. And the point of those gifts is to use them for his glory, not your own. And what we see far too often, not just in church, but probably more in the church than in the world, is that the thing that should be for the glory of God is for our own fame and acclaim and notoriety and our own gain. And the unfortunate reality is that's the deceptive work of pride, is that it will have you building a sandcastle, thinking it's a mansion, only to stand before Jesus and see what eternity really had in store. We must remember that God has gifted us not for ourselves, but for his glory. Now, I don't think anything, any company illustrates this better than Disney. Let me explain why. First of all, we've been on a bit of a run of Disney movies in our house because apparently Chrissy didn't have a childhood and has seen like none of them. And so we've been having to rewatch all of them. But Disney does this thing and it's very clever and it's always in every Disney movie. You have the antagonist, you have the protagonist. And it's always the exalted, the proud, who gets humble. It's always the enemy. And it's always the humble, meager, servant person who is exalted. And, you know, they say art imitates life. And I actually think that this is the case of one of those very real circumstances where that is the reality. That those of us who exalt ourselves here will be brought to our knees one day. I'm not saying that it's happening now, but the Bible does say for the people who wanted others to bow to them, every single one of us one day will bow to Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. 
What is interesting is that most of us think that when many people are wrapped up in pride, that there is this sudden change in their life that happens and say, wow, I don't recognize that person anymore. He used to be humble. You used to be able to talk to him. You used to be able to call him on the phone. You used to be able to get a text back. Not me, but that ain't because of pride. Y'all know I just don't be texting back sometimes. But in most of cases, we think there's a sudden change that happens in a person who used to be humble and meek and modest, and then boom, you no longer recognize them. But that's not the case. In fact, more often than not, it is a sudden, it is not a sudden change, but it is a gradual change over a long period of time where people are being fed in their egos. It is very gradual. As we see here, it starts just like this. The people here who are commending the apostles are lost. We can clearly see that. And Satan is known to operate in the lostness of others in order to deceive God's people. Here we see one of the most notorious ways men of God and plenty others are deceived. And it is through this. It is through compliments. It is through flattery. It is through ascribing to man what God has done. So what is the claim here? The people who see the miracle performed by God start to say in their native language that these men, Paul and Barnabas, were gods. Not just that, but they actually say that the gods had come down to them in the likeness of men. Let me give you some context. In Lystra, there was this myth that a few years prior, Zeus and Hermes had come down into the city. The people did not regard them. They did not revere them and they destroyed the city. So these people thinking in their minds where well, these folks are able to perform miracles, that these are gods again. We ain't going to get destroyed like we did last time. And so they come and they're revering them and they're bringing their sacrifice and they're bringing their offerings down to the city. And they want to make sure that the city doesn't get destroyed. So it's actually their idolization here of false gods which have led them to not want to make that mistake again. So they see what God is doing, but they can only see it through the lens of their lostness. And they say that this is a work of the gods. Now, the deceptive work of Satan and they don't even know that they're being misguided. These people even assign to Paul and Barnabas their own respective God. So they say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to explain why. They say Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. Now you're probably thinking, well, ain't Paul in charge? Why isn't he Zeus and why isn't Barnabas Hermes? Well, there's this issue with Paul. Paul was like four foot seven. First of all, he had scoliosis, a hook nose, red cheeks, and he was bald. Ain't no way that's Zeus. Okay. It had to be Barnabas. I could have been Zeus compared to Paul. So it can't be it can't be Paul. But he's also the communicator. And so because he's the communicator, they say, oh, yeah, he's Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. Zeus. And what they do is that they bring them oxen so that they can offer a sacrifice to them. Now, as we look at this, I know this seems like the most extreme example of pride. 
But this is happening with people every single single day. And maybe it's not to this extent, but it's happening at a far greater rate than it was then. What do I mean by that? Because every day, every single day, people needing to be validated and justified are posting their little meager accomplishments on social media fishing for someone to recognize them for their little work and feed their ego and they eat it up. All to God be the glory, but you posted five times about how you did this thing on your own. Because apart from God, we need to be fed and validated and justified that our life has some sort of meaning. And the unfortunate reality is that the only thing that will give many people meaning is that there were five people who agreed that their post was decent. This is not just reserved for preachers, though, by the way. But we are all sick with this disease of pride in some way or another. And the issue is, is that if we don't realize that everything we have been done and given is to be returned for the glory of God, then we will use our God-given, sacri- our God-given gifts as a sacrifice upon the altar of which we stand. That's the reality. And at some point, every single one of us, everyone in this room, every person in human history has to make that choice. Either I will use what God has done for me and given me for my glory or I will use it for his. It's not going to be both. It's not going to be both. And there is a temptation. I'll even tell you if I be candid, there's a temptation to not preach complicated messages like this. There's a temptation to preach the messages that are going to fill the pews up. But I'm going to have to answer to God for that one day. And I know you think, well, yeah, that's because you're behind a pulpit. But every single one of us is going to have to answer to God one day. Why do the people you work with know more about your life than they knew about the life of Jesus? Why do they know more about the successes that you had and not know about Jesus bearing the cross on their behalf? Why do people that you work with never hear the gospel and you called yourself a Christian? Because I was too busy flaunting who I was to actually share with them the truth. Listen, I was asked recently at the school, how do you sell your soul? They asked me that. And what they're asking is not how do you do it, but what's the process? Like, is there somewhere you sign your name? I was like, well, no. That's not how it happens. Selling your soul is the little compromises we make every single day on what we know is true. Not just for our own gain, but sometimes for what's comfortable. See, what fuels us is our own self-worth or the fallacy of it. This false sense of deservingness. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be fed. I deserve to have a home. I deserve to have good money. No, you don't. That is the lie that comes from Satan. Because if you think you deserve it, then when God does it, you think he's doing what he is obligated to do. And that is not true. And nothing will make a person more ungrateful than somebody thinking they deserve what they don't. 
And when you want to sell your soul, this is what I told a student, it isn't one compromise. You think it's just one decision? No. It's those little bitty decisions when you have an opportunity to stand for the truth and that'll cost you some finances. When you have to stand for the truth that is going to embarrass you and you decide that's too uncomfortable, I'm not going to do it. That's how we sell our souls. And the Bible has made it clear that man will sell his soul as an exchange for gain. So how is Paul in particular here able to resist the temptation for fame and popularity that his pride would have wanted him to feel? Simple. That's point number two. Paul knew he was bent towards pride. He knew he was bent towards pride. When Paul and Barnabas realize what's happening, they're floored. And I don't mean the who, me kind of flattery. No, they're actually disgusted by the fact that these men are worshiping them because they realize that the glory of God is being credited to them. And even worse, they are thinking that it is the power of God's by which they're able to do this. Now, I mentioned that Paul at least knows that he's bent towards pride. You're probably saying, but that doesn't show up here. How do you know that? Well, it doesn't necessarily show up here, but Paul tells us this repeatedly in his epistles. Paul says that from his youth, he had been set apart. He was smarter than the people around him. From his youth, he had been trained in the ways. And as he grew older, he said he increased in learning far more than his brethren around him. He was far more intellectual than they were. And so he knows that I have been separated in a way and he becomes an adult and he uses that pride to fuel his reasoning for persecuting the church. He knew he was bent towards pride. And so as he is exalted in God's gifting and he used it for his own gain, not only did God save him, but in the midst of that salvation, he humbled him. If your salvation has not brought about humility in your life, then you need to question if salvation has happened at all. Because there is no way any of us can have a great idea of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross in our place and still think that we have any value apart from him. We don't. Paul is knocked to the ground. He loses his sight and never really fully regains it. The same man who was brooding over Christians, killing and persecuting them, is now the man who says, you can understand all of the mysteries of the world, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. You can be gifted in all the areas in the world, but if you don't have the truth of the gospel, if you use it for your own gain, you, as Paul said, are nothing more than a brass symbol that makes a little noise. Now, perhaps it makes sense when Paul said that he had been given a thorn in which was to make him humble. You say, why did Paul need to be humbled? Because he said that Satan had come to make him conceited. Y'all, 
Satan's doing the same thing to us every day. We think that he's attacking us when we have a bad day, but it's actually the flattery and the compliments that he's using to pull us away from the truth. And so because he had been given this thorn in his flesh, it forced him to be dependent on God. And this is why later he says everybody else, those fake apostles and preachers, he said they'll make their boast in their strength. But for me, I'll make my boast in what makes me weak, because when I'm weak, only then is the strength of God perfected in me. Stop pretending like you have it together. You don't. And as long as you create the facade, then nobody will ever want to help you because you got it together. It is only when we set that pride aside and say, I don't have it together. And in fact, this whole thing is only held together by the grace of God. This whole operation, I was only able to make it to this church today on the grace of God. I will never give people to facade that I got it all together. Because if it wasn't for the binding blood of Jesus Christ, we would all fall apart. He said, I'll boast in what makes me weak. And the problem is with us is that we have this unending need to be validated, justified, vindicated, and legitimized. But if any of that, if it isn't from Jesus, it will only inflate you. I know that we think that we aren't bent towards pride, but even those of us who appear to be the most humble are filled with such pride. Here's my cool, relevant preacher quote of the year. That's all I got. Um, Rachel, this is for you. So J. Cole has his song out, and um, he says in the song repeatedly, pride is the devil. I think it's got a hold on me. But the issue is that pride is actually as human as a sin as you can have. Like we would love to think pride is the devil, but no, pride is very much us. We very much are pride. It is very humane of us to feel pride, to want self-worth, to want to feel like we deserve, to want to feel like we belong. That is very much who we are. And when we feel like we don't get that, it causes us to act out in all sorts of ways. Now, that isn't to say that Satan doesn't absolutely use that pride against us, but it's rooted in us, not in him. He just takes advantage of what's already there. See, we are born in the natural position to think more of ourselves, to overvalue ourselves. That is why we're constantly warned in the Bible to not think more of yourself than you ought to, to think less of yourself, to esteem others more than yourself. Yet we would not need that instruction if we didn't come with the position of thinking that we're more than we are. That's why I've said this before. Don't buy the self-esteem myth. It's a lie. You don't need more self-esteem. You need less. You need less. Because if you get depressed about what you haven't gotten in life, that means you already assume that you should have gotten something else in life. You don't need to think more of yourself. You need to think less of yourself. Or as C.S. Lewis said, think of yourself less. Think about it. 
if we don't recognize that we have this bend towards sin, towards loving and excusing ourselves, then when someone comes and affirms us in any portion of our lives that we want affirmation, we eat it up. It doesn't matter if it's in a job. It doesn't matter if it's on a post. It doesn't matter if it's a prospective partner. If we want affirmation and somebody gives it to us, we lose all sense of reasoning because of our pride. While pride isn't the devil, he certainly uses it as his tool to deceive us all. He tells Adam and Eve that God is preventing them from becoming like him, which is their right. Therefore, they should eat of the fruit. He tells Jesus that if you are God, then you should prove it by leaping off of the cliff. See, he capitalizes on our bend towards pride, our natural bend towards sin. And we have to have an awareness because of his plan. Satan wants his commendation to ultimately lead to our condemnation. And we have to have the same spiritual awareness that Paul and Barnabas have here. So when Satan sends a messenger at work that says, did you all that work by yourself? Did anyone thank you? You have to remember that you're bent towards pride. And you have to deflect what would normally inflate you. When Satan sends that woman or that man seeking to destroy your marriage, I know your wife and your husband must be grateful for you. You have to say, and they are. And I'm real grateful for them too. Because all it takes is a little kernel of what you perceive to be true. And before you look up, there's a fire in your life because you never put the flame of pride out. It's the last one and we're done. Point number three. Probably the most important one. Humble yourself or God will do it for you. Humble yourself or God will do it for you. When these men realize what's happening, Luke says that they tore their clothes. And the context of that comes from the Old Testament prophets. Whenever they got a particularly uh, damning prophecy or anything that brought them grief, they would tear their clothes as a sign of that grief. And that is the extent of which Paul and Barnabas feel for the idolatry that's happening here. They are not moved to gloat or be unjustly prideful, but they are moved to grief. Now, they are grieving for two reasons. One is that these people here were so taken by the miracle they performed that they actually missed the revelation of the gospel. And the second thing is, they knew the judgment they could face if they accepted this undue worship. So what do they come out and say? We are but men like you. This is such an important statement. Paul for sure is an apostle. He had seen Jesus But yet somehow he doesn't see his apostleship as a sign of status to think that he's better or higher. I'm an apostle. No. He knows that he is just a man whom God had graciously chosen to use. And he isn't giving false humility either. I think he is saying for the sake of their lives and his own, don't worship me. I'm but flesh and bone like you. Y'all know my famous quote, and I live by this quote. 
people will always put you on a pedestal. It's your responsibility to get off of it. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. People are always going to make me want to think that I'm better than what I am. They're going to do the same thing for you. And while it looks to be an attempt for them to make you feel good about yourself, know that Satan will use that flattery to destroy you. And the truth is, we're all bent towards that pride. We are all growing in the wrong direction towards pride. And it takes the gospel of Jesus Christ to cut us off and straighten us up. The most humbling thing that we can do in moments that we feel the rush of pride and that need for validation creep in, instead of making that post, instead of taking that picture, instead of sending that email, instead of writing that text, you take those feelings and you remember the cross that Jesus bore. And when you think about what you deserve, you need to think about the cross. When you think about what you have earned in life, you need to think about his tomb. When you think about all that you think you should get out of this life, you need to remember the nails that went in his wrist, not yours. And that should snap you back into reality and realize I'm nothing without Jesus. I'm nothing without you. Listen, we are bent towards pride. We are bent towards, in some ways, idolatry. and That's mostly just worshiping ourselves. Listen, if we don't bear the weight of humility... Now, then for eternity, we're going to bear the weight of our pride. Every way that we think we should be commendated and gifted and appreciated and justified and validated should look small in the eyes of God. And when somebody comes to you with that source of justification and validation, you should do like they did. Turn people's eyes to Jesus, not you. Man, what an amazing preacher you are. I ain't even create my vocal cords. And if God wanted to shut me up, he could do that right now. And so as long as he gives me this ability, I will do it for him and nothing less. Man, you're doing such a good job at work. You're so gifted. You ought to be CEO. God has me here for a reason. And I'm comfortable where God has placed me and nowhere else. Man, she don't, she don't, she ain't thankful for you, man. She don't care about you. No, she does. And I'm committed to loving her the way Christ has loved me. That's how you flip the script. Nothing will put out the flame of pride and idolatry quicker than reminding others and yourself that we are all merely the byproducts of God's beautiful design and created order. And nothing makes us look less like him than when we try to be him. 
Lord, we all struggle with pride and we all need, feel the need of justification in our own strength. But we know that without you, we are nothing. We are rudderless ships adrift at sea without our great captain. Because of the efficacious love of Jesus, the need for pride has been taken away. Jesus humbled himself to death, death on the cross, to give us eternal life. And we should pattern our lives after his example. Pride ruins and it destroys. But remember, whoever is exalted will be humbled. And whoever is humbled will be exalted. But only in eternity. Be humble. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word, God. We thank you for this simple reminder. God, we are bent towards pride. And God, we see how delicate the circumstances can be for us to allow it to creep in. But God, if we say we are who we are and we say we believe that you are who you are, then we know that we are nothing without you. Lord, we are nothing without your grace. We are nothing without your mercy. We are nothing without the saving death of Jesus Christ. God, remind us of that daily. Give us to the wherewithal, God, every day to bear our cross with humility. To die every day, God, to ourselves. And live our lives for your glory and not our own. It's in the master's name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.